work-life balance is a big thing and it's Mm -hmm. hard to try to do it all. And that is kind of a trend in the veterinary industry right now because it's always been a, you know, we work for the community. We work whatever hours are needed of us. Right. That was kind of the old way of thinking, you know, live to work sort of thing. Yeah. I feel like kind of our generation and those after us really realize that this balance is necessary. So even in set practices, people are getting more empowered to actually set those boundaries. You found Wolfpack Career Chats, and this is Marcy Bullock from the Career Development Center at North Carolina State University. I'm the creator of the podcast. Welcome to season four. This season will focus on versions of you, who you were, who you are, and who you will be, and we'll have exciting guests explore their journey. We're all still cooking friends, so no one put a fork in us yet. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. My name is Liz Holland. I'm a junior at NC State. I'm a communications major and pre-vet, and I'm so excited to be able to contribute to PAC Career Chats. For this podcast, I really want to focus on the veterinarian field in particular and how to find a work-life balance as a woman in the workforce. And Sarah Goff, has graciously agreed to join me today. Thank you, Sarah, for being here today. How are you doing? Oh, doing great. Happy to be here. Awesome. I'm excited for the fall weather. I don't know about you, oh, but God. yeah. I just pulled out all my fall decorations. I'm like willing it to be here right it's, now. It's the best season. It has the best weather, the best clothes, best everything. So I'm in the same boat as you are. So to start us off, would you just mind going over what your job is and your journey to how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so uh, my current job is I'm actually a full-time relief veterinarian, so I don't have a home clinic where you know I see regular clients all the time. I have a certain radius I travel when other vet clinics are shorthanded or they have doctors going on vacation because even doctors need that. I go and help kind of fill in to keep their practice running while they can actually have a life. That's really cool, and I feel like, I know for me at least, I never really thought that that would like be a thing in the vet field because when you think of that you always think about oh you have to be in your clinic at like these certain hours and it's really interesting to hear that you don't have to stick to one place which I I think is really interesting because I'm one of those people that like wants moving around constantly so the idea of not being forced into a home clinic and getting to see other things is really is really interesting so what was your time at nc state like what was your plan then whenever you graduated and along that so my plan was actually to be an equine veterinarian um that was always my passion from yeah high school onward so i did the equine track through school kind of avoided as much small animal as i could because Small animals are weird and horses are awesome. And that's what my first six years as a veterinarian really were, was being actually mixed animals. So I was at a practice that did a little bit of everything. But as you already kind of brought up, work-life balance is a big thing and it's Mm -hmm. hard to try to do it all. So a year ago is when I made the switch over to this relief life and it's been a complete like career saver. That's, that's really interesting. So keeping that in mind, how do you personally manage a work-life balance? Like I know you talked about how you switched to this new job. So could you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. So with my kind of situation, I work with a company. So they handle all my staffing. They make my schedule and just tell me where to go all the time. 
I have set hours. I set how many days a week I want to work. And it's also more flexible where if something comes up that I need a day off, it's not asking permission because, you know, I don't have that home base that relies on me to keep the clinic running. I just say, hey, I'm no longer available that day and we make it work, which, you know, as life changes happen, that can get to be very important. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like it's also a lot better on mental health too, because, you know, I think our work culture sometimes can be to work ourselves to death. And especially like in the vet field, like you work like those, those doctor hours, you know, and it can be really restricting and personal life and like many different factors. So I guess I really, I like to hear that you get to like set your own hours because you should be able to set your own pace and you, you know yourself, like, you know what you're capable of and all that you can take. And so that's really nice to hear that that is possible, especially in the veterinarian field. You know, as a pre-vet student, I, we get really stressed out. I mean, I'm sure you remember like being stressed out about like the process and like how many hours they have to work and trying to like meet that quota. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, and that is kind of a trend in the veterinary industry right now because it's always been a, you know, we work for the community. We work whatever hours are needed of us. Right. And that was kind of the old way of thinking, you know, live to work sort of thing. Yeah. I feel like kind of our generation and those after us really realized that this balance is necessary. So even in set practices, people are getting more empowered to actually set those boundaries, which is... Mm -hmm vital to kind of saving our industry because it's it's tough it definitely is tough and you know the veterinarian job itself is also listed under one of the top professions of suicide rates and like many people like i've said to me they're like oh no that can't be like how is that possible there's no, there's nothing there's no reason for those feelings to occur from like this particular job and so what are your like feelings on that topic and why is this true? And what do you think are some important steps to prevent this or suicidal thoughts within the field? Yeah. And that's, that is a big thing. And that's mm -hmm. where organizations like the not one more vet have kind of come up. So if you think about the type of person who's drawn to this career, we're empathetic people, you know, we care about animals, you know, we all have that kind of warm and fuzzy side of us and we at the end of the day, our goal is to help and save as much as we can. Mm -hmm. But the other hand, it's a, you can't save them all. It's a business at the end of the day. So, you know, people come in, they don't always have the finances to do what their pet needs. Mm -hmm. And as much as we want to help, if we just gave everything away, we'd have to close our doors. I mean, right. a line has to be drawn. So that's, you carry those patients home with you, like in your head, and you go to sleep thinking about those patients you couldn't help. And that starts to weigh on you, you know, for every 10 patients that have a great outcome, you have that one that's not, that's the one you remember and think yeah. about. Yeah, there's a big sense of helplessness, I feel, especially, at least that's what I felt personally, in my experience, my most recent thing that I got, was able to do is work in an animal rehab center. And a lot of times we did not have like the funding for things and we did not have like the resources to be able to help a particular animal. Or a lot of times when, like when a deer gets hit by a car, like sometimes you just don't, you cannot help every patient. 
And for me, that's like one of the biggest struggles is because as a future vet, you're supposed to be able to prevent this stuff. And a big thing that I get is, is that my family members will be like, oh, well, why didn't you, why didn't you save them? Like, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? Like, you're supposed to be helping these animals. It sounds like you're just killing them. And I feel like when you think about it from that, I, I definitely agree about like the empathetic side. Like, I feel like people don't think about the type of person going into the career. They just think about the field itself. And I guess that also depends on like where your values lie. Some people don't value, you know, animal life as much as they would like, you know, humans, like a human doctor. And I think that there's an important balance there. Because, you know, we obviously shouldn't be saying one's better than the other, but especially with this field, it can be very, very tacky when you feel like there's nothing you can do and it is your job. And I feel like that's why the work-life balance is important because if you don't take the time to like step away from all the stuff that's going on around you, you're never gonna, you're never gonna see the good that you're doing pretty much. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to spiral and kind of get stuck Mm -hmm. in that train of thought. Yeah. So what was one fear you had entering the workforce that ended up like not being as big as a deal as you imagined it to be? So imposter syndrome is a big thing that a lot of us face. Yeah. And that that was a big thing of, you know, not was I ready? Yeah. All of a sudden I go from being in the classroom to I'm doctor. Here's a patient. What do you want to do? Right. Um, I was very fortunate that, you know, your support staff at the clinic is your lifesaver. I mean, they've I was working with veterinary assistants who had been in that career for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So if one of them asked, hey, doc, do you want this medication for this dog? You know, I hadn't thought of that. But the fact that you're asking me makes me think I want to say yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, never being too proud to accept help. Nobody you're not above anybody. Right. Right. I, I Teamwork is especially important in this field. And also, um, so, you know, we both went to NC State. Uh, so I feel like as like women in STEM, there's often a lot of times where we feel this need to be like competitive with each other, like cutthroats, because that's just kind of like the society that we're in, the work culture that we're in. And so it can seem... It's kind of like daunting going into this workforce and being like, oh, I'm, I'm the doctor now. Like, oh, I have to like order like my female colleagues around and like take initiative, even when you may not know what you're doing. And it sometimes seems like a sign of weakness to ask for help. I know for me, when I transitioned to the STEM field, because I'm still a communications major, but I want to be pre-vet. That's the plan. I was very intimidated by, you know, everyone around me, but particularly women too. Like I didn't even consider like males like as a factor because I was like, they're separate. Like I need to focus on how do I set myself apart from like the females around me. And it, it didn't help me. Like it did not, it did nothing to like help my classes, help my like mentality. It pretty much just hurt me in that aspect where I was like, how am I going to beat all these people in my physics class and that wasn't what I needed to do I needed to be able to surround myself with like-minded people especially like you know women who are going through like similar things that I am in the workforce to talk about like 
okay, maybe you're not like perfect at STEM, but like you can do this. You do have these abilities. And then when it's time to go into the workforce, we're, we're united. We're not, we're not separate. We're not just ordering people around. And so I definitely had big imposter syndrome. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> and that, that doesn't necessarily go away right. very quickly. I mean, it's still, it's a work in progress. See, it, it still sneaks up on you every now and then, mm-hmm. but it's having that support system to say, Hey, you know, I'm second guessing what I'm doing right now. Can I run this by you? Cause that's, that's what I always appreciate. Even when I was mentoring newer doctors, you know, don't ask me what to do. Tell me a plan. I don't care how wrong it is. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, let's work through it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's also like good teaching moments too especially which is which is why I'm a big like I learn through experience I'm very much so like go out and do it rather than textbook and I mean classes are still important but like I feel like giving like like you said giving a plan and like navigating okay what was good about this what was bad about this and what can we like improve upon it is a much better way to like get rid of those feelings of imposter syndrome, I think, because like, you're not like belittling someone, oh, you said this, you did this wrong, you're done, you can't be a doctor. Instead of going here, I can see why you would think that way. Let's try this alternative instead. So that way we're building each other up instead of like tearing it down. Because if that's not going to help, like being, being tough and like always getting everything right is not going to make you a better doctor. I think learning from those mistakes is definitely what's going to like propel you forward. And so with that, one of my questions is when it comes to like mistaking, like making a mistake in the workforce, like in your job, how do you go about handling that mentally, like physically in the sense of like the process that's happening right right now? Like what what's your experience with that? And how did you handle it pretty much? Yeah, because I mean, it's inevitable when you have a right. patient's health and life in your hands, you know, none of us are perfect. And especially when we're working with patients who can't talk to us, mm-hmm. mistakes happen. That mm-hmm. happens to everybody. First step is owning up to it, not trying to hide it because that weighs on you and it doesn't help anybody. So own up to it. Say, hey, this happened. I need help. And then, you know, finding someone to talk to about it when it does go south, you know, whether it's a spouse. For me, I'm fortunate enough that my husband's also a veterinarian, so Mm -hmm. I can talk to him. He actually knows what I'm talking about. Right. I also am still really close to some of my classmates that Mm -hmm. I'll, I can talk to them and say, hey, this really crappy case happened. You know, what, what would you have done? Yeah. Um, You know, it's still, it never stops sucking, Mm -hmm. but, you know taking is an opportunity to learn instead of just beating yourself up, beating yourself up over it is not accomplishing anything. I mean, that's not going to bring the patient back. Right. And I think like with that too, it's having to like learn forgiveness is really important too, because, you know, with that work-life culture, we're like, Oh, you make a mistake. It's over. Like you cannot come back from this. You need to be thinking, you're going to be thinking about it forever. And we, I feel like we tend to struggle with the forgiveness aspect of remembering like, you know what, we're, we're a doctor, but we're also human. Like we are, like you said, we're going to make mistakes. Like nothing is ever going to be perfect, but it's how we move forward from those mistakes. That's going to set us apart, I think too. So yeah, learning to forgive yeah. yourself is a big thing. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, even if that means you have a professional you talk to, you know, there's yeah. nobody's above or beyond needing, you yeah. know 
uh, that paid ear to listen to. Right, exactly. Um, so what do you think is like the biggest issue or struggle that pre-vet students are facing right now? That can be anything. Oh, see, it's been a while since I've been a pre-vet. <laughs> This may not exactly answer your question, but there is definitely a transition period going from like the pre-vet to the vet life. And, you know, this can actually start when you're still pre-vet. Right. Is, you know, you're looking at a very elite program. So everybody who's accepted is top, you know, cream of the crop, yeah. top of the class. Yeah. Grades aren't everything, especially when you get to that level. I mean, you may be middle of the pack once you get into vet school, but that still means you're the middle of a pretty awesome elite group of people. Mm -hmm. um, so even learning earlier before you get to that stage to kind of, yeah, try your hardest, but you can let go of some things too. You know, you don't mm -hmm. have to be number one because truth is y'all are needed. <laughs> we we yeah. desperately need more of you. Yes, definitely. Um, so, you know, let yourself enjoy the ride. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think that we spend a lot of life going through it. Like here are my grades, like here is how I do in school. Here's how I do like in college. And then here's how I do in the workforce. And that's it. Like, that's all we're supposed to like, our work life is very important, you know, but like you said, grades aren't everything. Like we have to like actually enjoy what we're doing. My two parents, they did not, they went into a job that they did not like. And so I grew up always being like, okay, whatever I pick, it's going to have to be something that I absolutely love or, you know, love enough that I want to be like in it and doing it every day. And I feel like that gets lost, especially like when I look at like my peers doing their work and like how they spend their days is that they're always like, oh, I didn't do as good in this class as I wanted to. I'm not going to get into vet school. I'm not going to be able to do all these things. And we forget that we you know what we're individuals and we need to be well-rounded and then we're not defined by that 4.0 gpa that we're striving for or what the college admissions wants um because yeah for me i get very stressed out whenever i hear about nc state in particular and how only 80 something students get accepted and like you hear that and you start to like beat up on yourself like oh i are near so and so next to me and so it's, it's refreshing to hear that, you know, that this is true, that grades aren't everything and you can focus on stuff that like means something to you and that you don't have to like work yourself to death in that aspect. Yeah. And, you know, it's a competitive program that you're trying to yeah. get into and not everyone gets in their first try and that's right. not a slam on who you are, or how qualified you are. I mean, it's, yeah. There's a limited number of spaces and each person looking over admissions, different thing they prioritize. You know, your mm -hmm. one person's application may be reviewed by somebody who really focuses on academic and the, you know, their colleague is looking over applications and they're looking more at experience. So they're going to just naturally pick different people who honestly are both equally qualified to be there. Yeah. And I feel like that's hard to hear sometimes because no one ever really think that like a gap year is like a possibility. Like when I was first like looking at like what I wanted to do, I was like, oh no, there's no way I can take a gap year. Like what even is a gap year? You know, I didn't even, it didn't even pop into my head. And so I guess my next question is what do you recommend doing if you don't get in the first time? 
So, and I think the process has changed a little bit now. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, I didn't get in the first time, mm-hmm. so I can actually speak from experience there. We had a contact that had some like feedback for me from admissions. Yeah. Um, and he was actually able to tell me, this is the weakness in your application. So for my gap year, that's what I focused on. You know, for me, I wanted to do at the time, wanted to do equine medicine, had years worth of experience with horses but not in a veterinary side of things. So that's what I did for my gap year was had some awesome equine vets that I shadowed and in the ended up being one of the most fun years I've had. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I just, it's, it's good to hear that because, because like I said, most people are like, what, what do I like, do I give up after you get rejected? And I think it's important to like, talk about no like that does just because you don't get picked doesn't mean that you weren't good you're getting picked between like thousands of billions of applicants like it's just more of just what's happening in that moment and then that you definitely need to focus on like working like towards um whatever it is that they give you feedback on I didn't know that they gave you feedback so that's really nice to hear I think it's changed a little bit now. At the time uh-huh. I applied they really didn't. We just happened to have a oh, the an contact. Okay. You know, we happen to have a friend. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that has changed a little bit where you can request some feedback. Okay. Um, don't quote, I guess don't quote me on that, people. Yeah, that's um, something to look into. Yeah. But anything, you know, any sort of feedback you can get, or even if you don't necessarily get the feedback, kind of have, get someone to look over your application and see, oh, well, maybe you need some more hours in this or what mm-hmm. you need to do to kind of strengthen it. Okay. So say you apply to like five and you only get into one but it's not the one you want do you recommend I mean this, this is definitely a personal choice this is just like whatever you feel but do you recommend going to the school that you didn't really want or waiting and then reapplying like what is your thought process on that I you know it's kind of a situational thing I'd say first off you're most likely Again, it's not guaranteed, but you're more likely to get into the school that you're a resident of. So if you're a Mm -hmm. North Carolina resident, you're more likely to get into NC State to begin with. Right. You know, I actually had a classmate that the year before um, she was rejected at one school, but accepted into another. Mm -hmm. So she she chose to wait um, and try again. But, you know, I also when I applied, I had. NC State was definitely top of my list, but I had other schools up there too. Yeah. I got into state and not the other ones. And for me, it was, hey, let's just go for it because it's still a great school. You know, they all have their own strengths. So I I would err on the side of, hey, just go for it. Possibility of transfer is always there. It's a little bit trickier, but it is possible if, if it's just not working out. Because I mean, it may not be the school you thought you wanted, but you get there and realize, oh, this is really awesome. I'm glad I'm yeah, here. Exactly. You never know until you try. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in don't apply if you absolutely don't want to go there. Like there's no exactly. reason to do that to yourself. Yeah. Those applications are expensive. So if, yes, exactly. if there's no chance you would actually want to go to that school, don't waste your money. You know, no, it's a little bit different. In, yeah, you'll feel bad. <laughs> And it's a little bit different. This is a professional doctorate program, not undergrad. So the shotgun approach really isn't beneficial. Yes, it's not. I definitely think it's more damaging if you like set yourself up for that. And then actually it's the only, say it's the only one you get into and you're like, man, I really don't want to go there. So I paid for this for nothing. You know, if you just reject it in the end, 
So that's definitely something important to look at. So I have one final question before we wrap up, and this is just more like a general one. So what tips or advice do you have to the listeners just on applying to vet school, work-life balance in general, just what is, what is one thing that you wish someone would have told you pretty much? One thing I guess I would point out is not to be set in what you think you want to do. You know, it's cool to have a goal and go for it, but don't be disappointed if your life takes a different direction. You know, I wanted to do horses and now I'm not, but I'm just as happy with it. You know, I I think it can be very easy if you say for, you know, so many years, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. You almost start to feel ashamed if you change your mind. Yes, definitely. Don't. It's fine. It's your life. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone else will get over it. So just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, be open to change. Be open to, you know, trying new things that you didn't think you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, with all the stressors out there right now, it's nice to be able to hear your story and to see living proof that work-life balance is attainable. Um, I know it happens, guys. <laughs> it does. It definitely does. Uh, I know you've definitely brought me some comfort with thinking about the future, and I'm sure the listeners feel the same way. So also a special thanks to Marcy Bullock as well for allowing me to contribute to Pat Career Chats, and thank you to the listeners for tuning in. <laughs>